0: Our speaker this morning, Dr. Rivka prash Schwartz, has spent more than 15 years in the field of Jewish secondary education. She currently serves as the Associate Principal of General Studies at S.A.R. High School and has served as Director of General Studies at the Frisch School. Dr. Schwartz earned her B.A. in Physics and History of Science at Case Western Reserve University. She earned her M.A. and Ph.D. from Princeton University, writing a dissertation about the cultural history of the Manhattan Project. In addition to teaching high school, she has served as an adjunct professor of history at Yeshiva and Stern Colleges. She lectures widely both on the history of science and on Jewish topics, frequently addressing issues of contemporary importance in the American Jewish community. Dr. Schwartz. Good morning. I very much appreciate the opportunity to speak to you here on the occasion of this Yogi Yung in memory and in honor of Jack Flammels. While I did not know him, I had a number of connections to his family, starting with my having been Vitsal's AP U.S. History teacher. I think I was the only person in the school who refused to call you Bitsy. I think that was my uh, thing to think. Um, actually spent uh, Shabbat at her house once when she was with Jack at her apartment in Washington when she was with Jack in the hospital. And when Shira first reached out to me to speak about this topic, I was really excited because this topic has been one of enormous personal interest for the past, I'd have to say now, year and a half to two years, one that I've been doing a lot of research and writing about for nothing other than my own Google Drive, which now has expanded actually to some other projects that I'm working on, both in school and with some other institutions that maybe I'll have a chance to tell you about over the course of this next hour. But it feels really, really important and really important right now. And I'd like to tell you about the the incident that in retrospect got me started on this. I was having a conversation with a man about my age who by any measure would be regarded as the best example of a modern orthodox success story. He went to one of our Jewish day schools, one of our yeshivot in Israel, went to college, got a doctorate in a very prestigious field from a very prestigious institution and is now working in yet another very prestigious institution, absolutely the top of his field in the world. This is it. This is what we do. This is what we try to produce. This is our success story. And in talking to him at some point during the 2016 campaign. I don't remember if it was the primary season or the general election campaign. He said to me very casually, I only vote about Israel. Nothing else matters. I don't take anything else into account or into consideration. I only vote about Israel. Viscerally, instinctively, at the time, I found it very disturbing, but I'm not sure that I could articulate at the time why it was very disturbing, right? After all, we're not gonna look out for Israel who is. And the more time I spent thinking about it, the more I was able to articulate just why I found it disturbing. For starters, it says, that I feel no sense of commitment, obligation, investment to this country in which I live. I feel no sense of commitment, obligation, investment to the 300 plus million other people who share this country with me. I don't think that that which I have benefited from this country obligates me to anything in response. The only question I have to ask it used to be much more dramatic, as you could say, when I go into the voting booth and pull the lever, right? New York City represent, pull the lever. It's much less dramatic when you say, the only question I have to ask when I go into the voting booth and fill out the bubble, like I'm taking the SATs, but that's what we got now. The only question I have to ask when I walk into the polling booth and fill out, fill out the bubble is what am I going to get out of it for the things that I care about? And that honestly to me is very troubling. And I think the first few times I spoke about this, I haven't really given this talk yet, I'll just tell you, um, here's a little secret that you may not know, speakers recycle talks, right? They give them again, you haven't heard this, they give them again and again and again. Now, that sounds terrible, but the real truth is, by the fifth time I give a talk, I know how long it's going to take, I know what to put in and what to leave out, In a certain sense, it's much more polished and smoother the fifth time I give it, even if that sounds kind of like cheating. But this isn't the fifth time I'm giving this, so I'm going to try to pace myself and make sure I uh, uh, get to everything and don't spend too much time on anything, so you'll bear with (laughs) me. But in talking to people about this for a while, because I said I've been sort of chewing on this for a year and a half or two years, because that presidential campaign took forever, um, at first I would feel like i have to be apologetic. I'd have to say the usual apologetics, like of course Zionism's great and of course Israel's great and we all love Israel, we should all take care of Israel, we should all look out for Israel but now let's talk about American citizenship. I don't feel like I have to be apologetic. I don't think that we, okay that's too many negatives, I think that we can be very confident in our support for and caring about Israel and still be very clear in our assertion that we are citizens of the United States of America until we're not anymore, that we have benefited very much and continue to benefit from the country in which we live, that we have a great stake in its political and moral health, not just in its economic health, that we should care about more things than what's in it for me, and I don't feel any more like I have to say those things with three layers of apology, lest I be seen as insufficiently in Zionist in support of the state of Israel. So. At some level, nothing about this analysis is distinctive to American Jews. There is a great deal of analysis, writing, and thinking, often, let us say, descending into hand-wringing, about the breakdown of ideas and ideals of citizenship in the United States as a whole. There's a lot of talk about this going on everywhere. From the polling data that came out just about a year ago showing more and more younger Americans don't think that it's essential that they live in a democracy, to the polling data that shows very clearly that the most trusted institutions in American life by a country mile are the military and the police, with all of the institutions of government and the free press falling way below that? At all of that. You can look Gallup does polling, you can follow Gallup polling over the decades on this. It's really a little <coughs> terrorism. Um, so this conversation about people's lack of investment, Americans' lack of investment in citizenship, is not specific to the American Jewish community. And it's important to note that. I think there are ways it plays out distinctively within the American Jewish community, but certainly many of the things I'm going to be talking about today are simply reflections of a broader American problem or challenge. People who were in American public schools in the 50s or 60s will tell you that there were required civics or citizenship classes that everyone had to take. Those are few and far between now. We've given up on civics and citizenship for a number of reasons, probably one of which is that we're now too busy preparing our students for standardized tests where they have to fill in more bubbles to actually teach them about what it means to be a citizen. And there is a great deal of concern about this now, and you're watching now a resurgence in the development of citizenship curricula. And indeed, one of the projects that I'm involved now in working on is trying to develop citizenship curricula for Yeshiva high schools, like we need to be teaching this stuff. We aren't teaching this stuff and we need to be teaching this stuff um, because we thought it would take care of itself and it doesn't. It turns out that we were doing is we were coasting downhill with the momentum of the investment in the values of citizenship that had been made in previous generations and we didn't realize that at some point that momentum was going to run out. And then we got to the bottom of the hill and we were like, oh, whoops, I guess we need to give this thing some more gas. So we are now, I think, for better or for worse, in a position where we realize that we need to be giving this whole thing a lot more gas. And so a fair amount of what I'm going to be saying this morning is not distinctive to the American Jewish community. It applies to other people similarly situated to us within the American narrative or within the American story, although there are parts of it that are distinctive or the way they come together for us um, can be distinctive. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to talk about is where I come from specifically in this conversation. I am rooted in and an observer of the American modern Orthodox community. There will be points this morning that I raised that are specific to that community, and some that are more broadly applicable to the American Jewish community. Um, Makes sense to speak about what you know, and sometimes I will. And I'll make clear when I'm talking about uh, modern Orthodox specific sorts of developments, And when, again, I'm talking about things that are more broadly applicable to the American Jewish community or, indeed, the American Jewish community (coughs) as a whole. So we're looking at a problem that is, as the academics say, overdetermined. There are so many different things that contribute to the weakening of people's sense of citizenship and what it means that you can't even attribute it to – there are more factors causing it than you even need to explain why it happens. And what I'd like to do today is to try to analyze some of them, to break out some of them, to look at some of them and to say, these are some of the things that contribute to the erosion of a sense of citizenship, commitment, obligation, shared destiny. The good news, I guess, about there being so many different factors contributing to the erosion, that if we start thinking about or working out any one of them, maybe we can help make things better, to the extent that there's good news here. And so I want to return to that story that I began with, because that story describes an approach which is, I would argue, the opposite of citizenship. And the opposite of citizenship is transactionalism. So it's my go-to metaphor right now, it's the metaphor of the soda machine. I stick my quarters in, I wait for my can of Coke Zero to drop. None of this zero sugar nonsense about the way it you for a whole Coke Zero. Um, If it doesn't, I I kick the machine, I thump it, I don't know why, I yell at it, I I want my can of soda. I think that is how too many of us have come to approach American democracy. I put in my tax dollars, what am I getting out? Oh, I'm not getting out what I wanted to get out? It's time to thump the machine. And we have become at this point consumers of politics. We are certainly not committed. We are not contributors. I would argue that we are not citizens. And I'd like to say something very clearly here. Obviously, there are plenty of people in the United States who are contributors to our society in a whole host of ways. There are plenty of people in the broader American Jewish community who are contributors to the American body politic in a whole host of ways. There are plenty of people in the American Orthodox community. This is not meant to negate any of that, but we have vast mountains of statistical data, some of which I will assail you with this morning, to suggest that there has been a significant breakdown in these feelings, in these commitments, in this sense of investment, and I think we have to face that square on so we can think about it and start to do something about it. And so I'm going to ask that we um, see past the sort of taking personally, I am very invested in my civic obligations, I do that's great, there are, I'm sure, people in this room who do, as there are many Americans who do. But overall, we are watching a degradation of that, a decrease in that, and I think we should pay attention to it and try to understand that, um, to the extent that we can do so without feeling like we need to argue for our own um, doing right here. One of the things that's been an interesting phenomenon of the past year is that since Trump was inaugurated, you see a wave of people uh, uniting to protest various actions of the administration and calling themselves the resistance. And what's very interesting about that is that, by and large, what the resistance consists of is calling your congressmen and going to town hall meetings. In other words, these are some of the basic parts of participating in a democratic republic that honestly, we probably all should have been doing a lot more of for a lot longer. So framing as the resistance, I am now going to choose to be an engaged citizen in a way that I wasn't as long as things were mostly more or less going along the way I wanted them more or less, is a very interesting phrase, right, Your Avot tells us <laughs> that if you learn a lot of Torah, al tachazik tova l'atzmecha. don't like it literally means like don't grab or don't hold on to good for yourself. Don't give yourself so much credit because you learned a lot. of talk. Don't give yourself so much credit for being the resistant. You picked up a phone and called your congressman. That was probably a good thing to have been doing for a while anyway. We just worked. We were disengaged. We were all disengaged. Okay. So, how did we get here? Here's what I reject as an explanation for how we got here. I don't want to talk about the czar. Jews. Jews faced hostile rulers and they had no ability to participate and they weren't seen as citizens and the pale of settlement and the ghetto. So Jews are disinvested from the government under which they live and therefore they aren't committed and therefore. For starters, when I um, occasionally still pretend to be an historian and put on my historian hat, never use a two century old explanation for something when a two generation old or two decade old explanation will serve. Our lives and our worlds are much more shaped by things that happened 20 years ago and 50 years ago than I am by the fact that someone back in my family lived somewhere under some um, hostile ruler who didn't let them participate in the body politic. So I'm really not going to, if you'd like to argue with me about this and you'd like to argue that Jewish engagement or lack thereof in American politics really is all attributed to the czar or attributable to the czar, we can talk about this afterwards, but I'm going to set aside the czar. Um, as an explanatory mechanism. So, what have we got? Let's start talking about a few different factors which have been unfolding in American life, again, over the past decades or generations, which I think help explain the increasing weakening of ties of citizenship in general in American society and particularly in the stratum of American society that is populated by American Jews. And so the first thing that I'd like to talk about is meritocracy and its discontents. The idea of meritocracy is such a lovely one. The idea of meritocracy is that people should rise to the top based on their capacities and abilities and hard work rather than by accident of birth gender, ethnicity, inheritance, or anything else. That is the idea of meritocracy. Our meritocracy in its current form traces to the post-World War II years in the United States. Until then, admission to American elite universities really still was, by and large, a function of social class and religious background, and having gone to the right prep schools. There is a great deal to say about this. Um, Jerome Carabell has a book about elite college admissions called The Chosen in which he illustrates how many of the most annoying parts of college applications today, the essays, the letters of recommendation, all that stuff, that colleges today give you a whole song and dance about how they're getting to know you as a whole person, not just a set of numbers, those were instituted by America's elite colleges to weed out the Jews. When too many Jews were applying to and getting into their colleges, and they wanted, so sometimes you could tell a Jew because they showed up with the name Schwartz, so you knew they were a Jew, but sometimes they changed their name, those sneaky Schwartzes, right? And then they showed up with the name Smith, and how were you gonna know that Mr. Smith was actually a Jew? Well, if you ask for letters of recommendation, and you ask for personal family information and you ask for essays and you ask for all kinds of things, you could do a better job of uh, identifying that. In my research for my doctorate, I spent a fair amount of time reading FBI security files on scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project. Really fascinating reading. Many of those scientists were Jews. The FBI, like the United States Army in the 30s and 40s, was anti-Semitic top to bottom, and the kind of genteel waspy anti-Semitism of like, of course we don't like Jews. And the files are just full of crazy stuff. They're full of stuff like he lives in a Jewish neighborhood, but he doesn't sound Jewish. Like, what what is sound Jewish? He doesn't have an Eastern European accent. He grew up in the United States. He was born in the United States. Or you have a letter of recommendation written for a Jewish physicist by his professor to a university that's considering hiring him that says, oh, don't worry, you can hire him. He's Jewish, but he doesn't act it. Exactly, a letter of stuff like this, you know. Um, at some point I was reading a Time magazine from either late August or early September 1945 because I was looking for responses to the use of the atomic bomb. And it happens to be in the Time magazine that I'm flipping through, the president of Dartmouth College is being interviewed. Dartmouth was notorious, of all the Ivies, with all their quotas, Dartmouth was notorious for having the strictest quotas, which, you know, might have something to do with the Jewish population of Dartmouth today. And the, and the president of Dartmouth is saying in an interview with Time magazine in 1945, we have to keep the number of Jews down to stop the men of Dartmouth from becoming anti Semites. He says it's an injury to Time Magazine. Because if they're exposed to too many Jews, clearly they will come to hate them. So the way to prevent anti Semitism is not to allow too many Jewish undergraduates into Dartmouth. In 1945, he was willing to say this to Time Magazine. Um, all of that changed. When James Bryant Conant became the president of Harvard University in the years after World War II, and James Bryant Conant decided to shift Harvard University from being this club for well-educated WASPy boys who went to the right prep schools and you allowed in a token few Jews or whatever, and the, one of the things that was going to become the instrument of the meritocracy, this is so fascinating now to think about, was the SAT. The SAT was going to be the way that you told who was actually capable, rather than just who was, you know, fifth Smitherton the fourth. Son of fifth Smithington the third, son of fifth Smithington the second, son of fifth Smithington, who should of course go to Harvard because every bit, Biff- I can't even say name. every fifth fifth Smithington goes to Harvard, um, and the SAT was going to do, it. which actually may have been the case to some extent and for some time, although I will not belabor the point right now as to how much the SAT right now has simply, had success on the SAT today has simply become a way of. Transmuting economic advantage into test score advantage, but that's uh, a conversation for another time. Actually, it's not. Let's keep going with that for a little bit. So that's what's happened with the meritocracy that was started in post-World War II years. That so many, if you're my generation, I'll say parents and grandparents. For some of you who may be your generation, were able to benefit from. Gaining access to the opening of elite universities, gaining access to the opening of professions that were once closed to Jews—it's meritocracy. You can rise on the basis of your merit. You don't just have to be a WASP who knows people and has connections. What that facilitated, wholly unintentionally and with the best of intentions, was really a rather devastating phenomenon for any kind of social cohesion or investment in broader societal good. Because if I advance, because I am Biff Smitherington IV, and I went to Andover, and from Andover, everybody knows you go to Yale, I at least know that I made it because of my place in society, not because of who I am. And if I'm a good version of Biff Smitherington, I have a sense of noblesse oblige. That my privilege obligates me to do something or give something back. And that's how you end up with a whole early CIA was full of Yale graduates. Whether you think they were doing good things or bad things, I'm not arguing for the merits of the 40s and 50s, you know, 50 CIA. But there was a sense that I had some obligation to do something back. But if I got into Yale because I worked for it and I earned it, I owe nothing to anybody else. And actually, if you didn't work for it, and you didn't earn it, so like, fooey on you, right? The fault is entirely yours. And if you find yourself socially or economically or otherwise disadvantaged, that's actually your lack of bootstrap up pulling, and I don't owe you or broader society anything. This was the last thing that the meritocrats of the mid 20th century intended. They really thought they were creating a better world. What they enabled uh, instead is a world in which we have this very deep sense that we are entitled to what we have because we have earned it and we don't owe anything to anybody else. There's a book by Chris Hayes, yes, the MSNBC guy Chris Hayes. The book is called The of the Elites. I highly recommend that you read at least the first six chapters of the seven chapter book. Because it sounds like he has mapped out our era, like he was taking notes on our era, but the book was published in 2012, which gets it a lot of credit for being tremendously prescient. And he describes this kind of sorting of the elites and believing in their own worth and their own meritocracy and their own deserving it, pulling farther and farther away from the people they've left behind. Not having any sense that that's a problem, because again, if I made it, it's because I earned it. If you didn't earn it, it's because you're not working hard. And so work hard. So work harder. It's a problem. I have to tell you, I teach lovely kids. Love teaching. teach high school seniors. AP government class. Many of them consider themselves very, very liberal. If we're talking about gay rights, and if we're talking about this, and if we're talking about that, they consider themselves very liberal. You should watch what happens in class when I raise the topic of the estate tax with these very liberal kids. I don't understand. If my parents earned it, or my grandparents earned it, what right does the government have to take it away from me? Okay. There is more data about this than I have time to tell you about. But there is a vast trove of data to show that over the past 40 years, the gains in the American economy have accrued largely to the very top of the economic distribution, that the bottom sector of the American economy is basically standing still, if not falling behind. <laughs> the problem is not just that the bottom isn't getting lifted, the problem is that that creates a huge divide where, again, this is all borne out by a trove of data. I'm happy to share with you a great reading list if you'd like it, um, but a trove of data. The difference between the CEO's salary and the average, work, average worker salary in the 50s was much less than it was today. That meant neighborhoods were less sorted. That meant you weren't flying on a private plane; so you were actually in an airport. You were encountering other human being people. It meant you weren't flying private between your seven homes and never actually encountering. There was a much broader knitting together of society, which our meritocracy has our meritocracy has actually allowed, in a certain sense, to unravel and given us the sense. And I say us because. American Jews, not going to come as a surprise to anybody, tend to cluster in the top quintile of the American um, uh, economic distribution. We tend to be those meritocrats. We tend to have those jobs where we feel like we earned it. Um, and I'm looking at the clock as I could go on on this particular first topic about meritocracy and its discontents for a very long time, but we'll try not to go on much longer. Let me tell you one more thing. In a different conversation, a different year with a different group of students, a student said to me, Yes, my father makes a lot of money, he works very hard for it. I said, you're absolutely right, he does. Your father's a lawyer, he spends very long hours in the office, he works very hard for it. I said, let me tell you a story about Carl Dean Newton. Carl D. Newton, at that point, was watching my children. She was my babysitter. And I once apologized to her for how crazy my children were making her. And she said to me, you know, my last job was, my last job was I worked in a bakery. You know anything about bakeries? Bakery's open crazy early in the morning, so by the time you get there at 6 in the morning, there's a fresh roll or danish or whatever it is for you to buy. She said, I open at 4 in the morning. I have nothing your kids do as hard. I said, Carlene Newton works as hard as your father works. Just she's in a setting that doesn't reward that and pay that and help that advance the same way your father did. I want to talk to you about, I know I keep saying I'm going to stop talking about this topic and move on because I have like six more to get to, but I want to say one more thing about this. Book came out this year by a guy named Richard Reeves at the Brookings Institution. It's called Dream Hoarders. And it's like directed right at us. Because what he says is it's, it's building on this problem of the meritocracy he says those people who sorted into, let's say the top quintile, you know what number makes you the top quintile of the American income distribution? I do because this is my Cincinnati government. About $112,000 a year puts you in the top fifth, okay, just so we know what we're talking about. Top fifth, $112,000 a year. <coughs> So Richard Reeves is writing about the top quintile, not the top 0.001%, the top quintile, and he says we hoard the dreams. We hold on to the dreams so other people can't get access to them. We don't share the dreams. And of course we're doing it for the best reasons. Why wouldn't I want to give my kids the best? But in doing that, we hoard the dreams, and in hoarding the dreams, we further the separation, which leads to the sense of, I earned it, you didn't, which leads to the sense, I have no shared obligation or destiny or commitment to you, which leads to this disinvestment dis- dis- from citizenship. So I'm driving down here this morning, and I'm listening to NPR on the radio. And on NPR, they're talking about a series that they did of asking Americans who make in the, in the neighborhood of $100,000 a year to call in and talk to them about their lives and their financial state. And they acknowledge, They acknowledge that $100,000 a year already puts you on the top of the American income distribution. The median household income in the United States is about $59,000 a year, a number that I drum into my students' heads. I think it's useful for them to know. And they interview today the first woman in this series. And she talks about how money is tight. She never would have expected that $100,000 a year money would be tight. But when they got married, only her husband needed to work. And now she needs to work because they had kids. And kids are expensive. And why are kids expensive? And she describes her son who's in high school, who both plays the flute and does some, some kind of STEM, science, technology, engineering co-curricular. And both of those things cost money, all co-curriculars cost money. Now, as a parent, that's exactly what you want to be doing for your child. Give your child an advanced music education. Give your child some kind of advanced uh, pathway in tech. Both of those things are things that can set your child up for advantage in life. Both of those things are classic and dream hoarding. Right? you are helping your already advantaged child accrue more advantages which are going to help him get into college, which are going to help him stay where he is, if not go farther, and someone else is going to stay behind. Does any of this mean we shouldn't give our kids flute lessons, right? you walk away from here saying she said we shouldn't give our kids flute lessons. I really didn't say you shouldn't give your kids flute lessons. But we need to understand that the dynamics of a million individual decisions layered onto layered onto how our economy has changed in the past 40 years, layered onto the decisions government has made in the past 40 years, layered onto uh, how college uh, admissions, which are so important to the story, have worked in the past 40 years, has created not only this great gap, but this great gap in which the people at the top feel they have earned their place in the top and therefore owe nothing to the people under them. So that's meritocracy and it's discontent. Related to this, I'd like to talk for a few minutes um, about what is a general, again, challenge in our, uh, in the socioeconomic stratum in which American Jews tend to disproportionately fall. And it's a particular issue in the American Orthodox community. And I call that. So we're now to number two, right? Number one was meritocracy and its discontents. Number two is choking to death on $500,000. So people make fun of the New York Times style section for being wildly out of touch, and it is. And my favorite type of article in the New York Times style section, which they run periodically, if you actually go back and look, you can find them, is some kind of story about these poor families trying to make a go of it on half a million dollars a year. So sometimes it once it was like a budget and it's like how can they afford their apartment in Manhattan and two vacations and two cars. Once it was about you know skyrocketing private school preschool tuition and again how can a family of two lawyers afford preschool tuition? I have another article in my archives of a Wall Street Journal article, the same thing, it's impossible to live in New York and half a million dollars a year. First of all, this is helped by again that kind of sorting that's been going on in the economy, in which increasingly you are likely to spend your time with more people of your economic thin stripe, rather than people who are not like you, which completely resets your barometer for what's normal. All this um, behavioral economic stuff that everybody loves to quote right now has uh, shown us that in many ways we are not rational economic actors, even if we like to think we are. So that for example, our sense of being well off is totally comparative and situational. So I always say to my students, if I drive a brand new Toyota Camry, do I have a nice car? There is not an objective answer to that. The answer is, if I pull into a parking lot full of beat up Chevy Novas, I have a nice car. And if I pull into a parking lot full of Range Rovers, I'm a schlepper. That's the answer, okay? So if we live among other people who are of our narrow socioeconomic stratum, and even better off, then I think, you know, if I haven't redone my kitchen in the past three years, that I'm like an option leper loser who hasn't redone my kitchen in the last few years. Because I'm surrounded by other people who have. And if i live surrounded by other people who haven't redone their kitchen, we all haven't redone our kitchen and we're all happy about it. Um, so that sort is of a piece of the issue. But I think there's something else that needs at least to be put on the table, and then I'm going to move on from this topic. I'm not going to spend too much more time on number two. And that is the way that we, particularly the modern Orthodox community, have recast day school tuition from a luxury or privilege of the well off to a religious requirement. <clears throat> Instead of I send my kids to private school at Brearley or Dalton or you know whatever else it might be um, and I'm paying for that because that's what people in my class do and if it's tough for us, I guess it's <clears throat> tough to remain in this class, we say I'm paying for that because it's a religious obligation. And therefore it's not, I'm, I'm class driving in a way that's difficult for me to navigate, it's, Being a modern orthodox Jew is really expensive and really hard, and that allows us to recast it as, and therefore anything that I do to get the government to help me with this is, you know, in service of a a greater religious good, and therefore justified. Um, And that allows me not to ask questions like, if we can secure governmental programs that will give us funding for our schools or for our tuition, that come at the expense of public schooling, is that the right thing to do, even if it makes our lives easier? Or if we live in the suburbs, that's a New York question. If you live in Westchester or New Jersey or in the five towns, it's a different question. It's, if I can vote down the school budget because I think it's too generous, because I pay tuition in yeshiva anyway, and I don't also wanna pay for the public schools, is that the, when I recast that as a as a question about enabling me to fulfill my religious obligations, rather than a question about enabling me to inhabit um, a particular socioeconomic class, my answers to those questions may be very different. Um, the the you know the mob with the torches and the pitchforks can form outside <laughs> afterward. For a long time, I never said anything about tuition in public because it's it's the thing that modern Orthodox Jews most complain about about the cost of um, being modern Orthodox and the, the Nishma survey that just came out, you know, what's the biggest challenge being on North like Ninety-some-odd percent of the people they interviewed said Nishima tuition. And I, I'm, I haven't heard a hard time with that, I really am. I think, to some extent, we are recasting <coughs> things that we want as markers of a particular class as religious obligations. Okay, now to open this up, I have to say one more thing about this, because I am actually, I'm not even joking, I'm saying it like it's a joke, but this actually engenders an enormous amount of anger and pain on the part of parents who are really, really straining to pay yeshiva tuition. And I'm not discounting that or invalidating that. Yeshiva tuition is very expensive and there's a great deal of strain in paying it. But my point is the Wall Street Journal is also writing articles about parents paying adulted tuition and it's a great strain. The question is do we see that as a similar thing or is it a wholly different thing because I'm fulfilling a religious obligation, in which case that's a totally different conversation. So I will now tell you, this is like this is like, you know, Rufus Board's bingo, like in every conversation, I have to mention at some point that I didn't grow up in the modern Orthodox world. I grew up in the yeshivish Haredi, Black Hat, whatever you want to call the world in Bruno. The high school that I went to for high school still exists. My mother's actually the principal, but that's a different story. The tuition of that high school today is about ten thousand dollars, give or take. Students are getting a sound basic education. If you're familiar with New York State, they're getting a regents education, the regents diploma. They're prepared to go on and get a college education if they want to. They don't have, I mean, I can sit here and list all the things that my students have in SCR if they don't have, right? I didn't have tracked classes. We all took the same math class. If you were really smart, you were really bored in math for most of high school. If you struggled, you struggled in math for most of high school. We were all in one math class. We didn't have the range of electives, and we didn't have the teams, and we didn't have the sports, and we didn't have the clubs, and we didn't have the co-curriculars, and our classes were much bigger. All of that is true. That's what we didn't have. And we got a sound basic Regents education, and I went on to college, as did my friends. So to the extent that we are choosing to give our kids the kind of education we give them, one that not only prepares them to be monitored by Jews, but also prepares them to go to Princeton, we really have to ask ourselves whether that's all in service of fulfilling the religious obligation or whether we are mixing together the markers of our social and economic class with our religious obligation, but then conveniently kind of, you know, laying all the blame on the feet of the religious obligation, which, let, which lets us then say, and therefore whatever we do in this in the service of alleviating that strain is justified. And actually, really stops now before I get myself into any more trouble than I already am. Okay. Let's move on. Let's talk about following the law. Bowling Alone So Robert Putnam wrote this book called Bowling Alone that came out a while ago and everybody talked about Bowling Alone and I read all the reviews of Bowling Alone and as you sometimes do I was like okay I got Bowling Alone I don't need to read Bowling Alone it's all about how Americans used to join organizations used to join clubs used to join church groups used to join all kinds of things and now they don't join got it, I kind of thought it was like a David Brooksy, let me go to a, wander through a Red Lobster, and now I'll go to a Home Depot, and now I'll write a book about it, please buy my book. <laughs> um, in, in the service of the last year and a half or so of thinking and reading I've been doing about this, the Amazon truck, just the, the, the truck that delivers the Amazon boxes just keeps pulling up to my door, because at this point in my life, I'm like too old and lazy to go to the library, so I just order it all, and Amazon keeps pulling, also oh, because you know, if, I, if Amazon existed when I was working on my dissertation, maybe I wouldn't have gone to the library then either, but now Amazon exists. Um, pulling, pulling up to my door, um, Amazon existed when I was working on my dissertation, it wasn't an app on my phone, as soon as I think of the book I ordered, looked <laughs> Um So I bought Bowling Alone and I actually read it. Bowling Alone is not an easy read but it's a fascinating book because Putnam actually marshals a vast amount of research to prove what he's saying. It's not I wandered through Home Depot and then I went to Red Lobster. How do you find the evidence for decreased joining and decreased commitment, it's a fascinating thing, but he and his group did it. If you read, I forgot if it's the forward or the afterward, He describes how many years of how much data collection and how much data analysis it took them to build this data set. But Americans have become enormously less inclined to join. And he talks about a lot of reasons for this. Some of the reason for this is the moving out so that we're farther away from each other, even from the older suburbs to the newer suburbs, houses are bigger, houses are farther, farther apart. We therefore spend more time commuting. We spend more time in our cars. We spend more time alone. The, the fraying of various other kinds of bonds, the decreased religiosity means we're not spending a lot of time in church on Sunday, Rod Dreher, who is a uh, conservative Christian commentator, writer, came out with a book a year or two ago called The Benedict Option, in which he actually argues that American society is like so corrupt and rotten and crumb and everything else that we should all essentially build ourselves an ark and climb inside and pull the doors up. So that's a whole fascinating argument that we can return to at some point about disinvesting from citizenship a different way, but he points out something else that I wouldn't have known because this is not how I worship, which is the difference between the rise of the evangelical megachurches as opposed to the local community churches. When you went to your local community church of 300 people that you knew, and a minister that you knew, and you worshiped there every Sunday, and you encountered them, there were all kinds of webs of social connection that came out of that. And even if you were still church right? he's writing about a population that's still church-going, but you go on Sunday to one of these, you know, they buy old basketball arenas and they can, old basketball stadiums, whatever the word for a place to play basketball is, and they convert old basketball arenas into churches, and they have the minister up on the jumbotron, right? And and it's giant screens and sound and light shows. You don't know the people you're worshiping next to. You certainly don't know the minister. The minister doesn't know you. You're although you're going to church every Sunday, you're not embedded in the same kinds of webs of connection that you were um, before you were fully blown. Philosopher Nancy Rosenblum at Harvard has a book called Good Neighbors in which she argues that actually those neighborhood connections, like neighborhood is practice for being a citizen, getting along with the other people you live with, working out small problems. How should we navigate the question of the guy tree training over the block and I live in Washington Heights. Someone in the city decided at some point it was a grand idea to plant ginkgo trees in Washington Heights. Oh. They're the ones with those beautiful fan-shaped leaves. The fruit stinks like something rotty. I guess that attracts flies to pollinate them. And then the ginkgo tree, the ginkgo tree um, fruit are rotty all over before the place stinks at. What are you going to do about the neighbor who won't deal with his ginkgo tree fruit stinking up the joint, right? How are we going to, how are we going to, and so Nancy Rosenblum says that actually being a neighbor is good practice for being a citizen. And not just practice, it's training. is the step that bridges between me as an individual and this blob of 330 million people that I'm somehow supposed to feel connected to or invested in. And these small organizations that I participate in, that I navigate through, that I figure out how to work with other people about, and people who are different than me, and people who don't think exactly the way I think, um, that's actually training wheels. Except to the extent we've lost those training wheels, we then forget how to be part of it in the bigger polity as well. So here um, is a place where I thought that the Orthodox community was distinctive and I'll tell you what I thought and then I'll tell you who helped me on thinking. I thought the Orthodox community was distinctive because not driving on Shabbat makes a world of difference. You have to live together and you have to daven in human scale (laughs) congregations. You can't have a 25,000 person megachurch if everybody has to walk there on Shabbat. It just doesn't work, right? Uh, mega shul, obviously. You can't have a 25000 person mega shul if everybody has to walk there on shots. It doesn't work. And so we live on human scale. Our biggest shuls in the Orthodox community are what, a lot of 1,000 people, 2,000 people. How big do they get ready? They don't get that big. They just don't get that big for logistical reasons. And we live together, and we live near each other. And we pray together. And I thought that this would seem to suggest to me that the Orthodox community should be different than that we should still have some of what Nancy Rosenblum is talking about. And then a student of mine told me that I was wrong. And once he told me the way in which I was wrong, I realized that I was wrong in this way because I live in Washington Heights, New York where more or less, it's not really totally <laughs> true, there are multiple shuls, but there aren't that many multiple shuls. And more or less, we still come together in shared spaces, a range of people and different people with different views because the community is not that big and there aren't that many shuls. The student of mine who said this to me lives in Teaneck, New Jersey, and he said it's not true at all. He said shuls sort politically. political. They absolutely do. People now, we're, we're going to do this as a silent exercise of the reader. We're not going to say this out loud, okay? <laughs> if you live in Teaneck, what should you do dominant if you're politically, politically conservative? What should you do dominant if you're politically liberal? If you live in Riverdale, what should you do dominant if you're politically conservative? What should you do dominant if you're politically liberal? If you live in Scarsdale, New Rochelle, what should, right? We, could, we could go through this exercise. And actually, I realized that he was right. I live in a community that's not quite like that, but it's actually not the case. I thought, I thought we might bowl alone, but we in together, but he actually convinced me that it's not true that we dobbin together. We actually bowl alone and increasingly we dobbin alone, which by the way, gives us something super interesting for us to chew on as a high school administration, because we have become convinced, you can tell me this is self-flattery, I'll hear it if you want to tell me that, we have become convinced that actually the big schools are the only place in the community where we actually bring lots of people together. And we bring families from here and families from there and families from this school and families from that school and then we try to make it all work together and if had another hour I would talk to you about navigating life in school like that and how fascinating and challenging it is on a political level on a religious level that you bring people together from different parts of the community with different points of view, opinions, thoughts about all these things and then we try to make it work. And so, again, you can tell me that it's flattering ourselves, that we think that we're the, we're the, we're the last man standing trying to do this. Maybe we are flattering ourselves. We certainly are we certainly doing this, that much I'll tell you. Whether tools are doing it or not, I can't tell you, but we certainly are doing this. We are bringing together people from, from different sub-communities of the modern orthodox community, people of different points of view, different vantage points, and trying to navigate this and make this work. But the big sort, it turns out, is not just in the broader world. The big sort is in the um, modern orthodox community as well. The next factor contributing to our disinvestment that I want to talk about, um, I was going to say it's one of the most loaded ones, but I actually feel like the sheep of tuition is the most loaded one, so I don't know, maybe everything is loaded. Maybe in talking about how we came to disinvest as citizens, there's a lot of standing back and, and like challenging thinking to do here about how we got to be here, enjoying the benefits that this society affords us and not feeling obligated to contribute in return beyond going to vote to advance my own interests. And maybe we need to be pushed and made a little uncomfortable. In Sar High School, we talk about going beyond our comfortable limits a lot. Maybe we need to go beyond our comfortable limits. So this was what I thought was going to be beyond our comfortable, our comfortable limits, but I didn't think I was going to talk that much about YouTube tuition. That's certainly beyond our comfortable limits as a community to think about. Um, I call this off-white flight. I know I just keep talking about books that I've been reading, but that's because nothing I'm saying is a chitish. Nothing that I'm saying is new. It seems to me that this topic about how Jews have come to be less invested in American citizenship pulls together, as I said, these many strands, these many pieces of developments going on in broader American life. And anytime I find something that seems worth pulling on, I start pulling on it. And pulling on it means I order more books from Amazon. And Amazon's happy every time I find a new thread to pull on. Uh, So here's here's one that's really challenging and really hard for us to think about and really hard for us to face square on, which I don't think exempts us from having to do it. There's a professor of history at Princeton University named Kevin Cruz. And Cruz has a book called White Flight. There you go, straight up. We all know what the phenomenon of white flight is. White flight is in the 50s and 60s, white Americans abandoning the cities or the suburbs. And we also know, the very name white flight tells us, that while that was economic and it was moving up in the world and it was everyone dreams of a yard and a picket fence, there were also racial motivations as well. American cities have become increasingly African-American with the great migration between World War I and World War II, with many African-Americans moving from the deep south to work in the urban centers in the north. Um, White people in the central cities choosing to move out of and leave the cities move out into their white suburbs and their white communities. In Atlanta, which is the city that Cruz focuses on in his book, Life, Life, focuses on Atlanta, in Atlanta, Cruz shows how this is inextricably linked with the integration of the schools. As the public schools started integrating in the city of Atlanta post-Brown and post-the Supreme Court and post-the federal government actually pushing on that, white people started moving out to the suburbs, where they could reincorporate towns and new counties and everything else around Atlanta that would, you know, redefine your school district, redefine your population, and basically get yourself back to an all-white school without saying that you were doing it to have an all-white school, which it turns out you're not allowed to say anymore. You can't say that anymore. There is an interview that I cannot quote, but it is the most useful, absolutely, like, it's canonical, you need to know it. And one of the reasons why it's so interesting is that the guy who did the interviewing was a political scientist named Alexander Lamus. Alec Lamus was actually my political science professor at Case Western Reserve University. This is his one lasting contribution to the study of American politics. And it's so lasting that if you Google this interview, you'll see it shows up everywhere all the time. Alec Lamas, uh died tragically, untimely young, um, shortly after I had him. But I teach this to my students every year. I teach this to my students every year. Even Alec Lamus hadn't been my professor. Albert was in the 1980s writing his doctorate on the politics of the New South went to interview Lee Atwater. Lee Atwater you may remember as the strategist for the George H.W. Bush campaign who was known for being an absolute barracuda. He was the guy between the bully Horton ads. He too died untimely young of a brain tumor and in his final illness kind of did Shuba and apologized for the toxicity of what he introduced into American politics. But well, he was doing it, he was doing it. And so there's this interview that Lehmann did with Atwater. At the time, Atwater was, he couldn't identify Atwater. Atwater was anonymous when he did it for his book, but many years later it was, it was revealed that, in fact, the interviewee was Atwater. And the interviewee says, at first we used to yell the end word. But he says, that's what we used to yell. But then you couldn't yell that anymore. So then we started talking about economic issues, low taxes freedom of choice, self-determination. He goes through a few rounds of this. I'm not doing it as well as uh, as it plays out as Atwater plays it out in the interview. In successive lines of argumentation that are ever more abstracted and therefore ever less linkable to race, and yet at their core, that's what they're really about. Says Atwater, talking to Al Clang. Al Clang, sympathizes with this now. Lee Atwater says, this is what we are doing here. We are getting ever more abstracted in what we're saying politically, but at its core it's about race. And Cruz demonstrates very carefully in his book with a lot of evidence that that's what was going on in Atlanta. That in Atlanta, white people were leaving the city to get back to white schools, and yet they were using a language of community schools and local control and not having a central government order us around, and language of independence and freedom that resonates with a lot of deeply held American values. And yet, three layers down, what was going on was we want to live someplace where the black people aren't and send our kids to schools where the black people aren't. So that's challenging enough, but that's Atlanta and that's the South. Here's what we in the North love to do. We love to say all race problems in America are in the South, that's them, they be the bad ones, we're good. Dealing around with that is not true, but since it makes us feel good, we keep telling this story even though it's not true. So there's a guy named Richard Rothstein who published a book this year, and the book is called The Color of Law. And The Color of Law is an incredibly important book, and a deeply disturbing book. Because Rothstein says two things, and I want to make clear that when I say argues, I mean argues with a lot of evidence. So if you want to argue with his evidence, you can argue with this evidence, but you can't just say it's not true because it doesn't make you comfortable. I tell my students all the time, the job of American history is not to make us feel warm and fuzzy in our tummies. Right? It's not to make you feel good. If it doesn't make you feel good, you can argue I think it's not true, or you can't, but you can't just disregard it because it doesn't make you feel good. Here's what Rolstein says in The Color of Law. He says, this business about how there was du jour or de jure, depending on how you prefer to pronounce it, segregation in the South. There's segregation by law in the South. White people live here and black people live here. And in the North, it was just de facto segregation. They kind of sorted themselves. Black people went to black neighborhoods and white people went to white neighborhoods. Rolstein says, that is complete, utter, total, It's not true, it is not true, and it shows very clearly that the federal government in FHA policies, in deciding which mortgages it would guarantee, which therefore determined who could get a mortgage and where they could buy a house, was explicitly putting maintaining the open quote racial character of neighborhoods as a value and a thing it was doing. It would not guarantee a mortgage for a white person to buy a home in a black neighborhood. It would not guarantee a mortgage for a black person to buy a home in a white neighborhood. It would not guarantee, didn't want mixed neighborhoods. The federal government was maintaining racially sordid neighborhoods. I have never seen this, but I actually heard about this before, and he mentions it again. There was a place in Detroit where there was apparently a white neighborhood abutting a black neighborhood along 8 Mile Road. And the FHA didn't want to insure mortgages there. So they built a wall. They built a wall along 8 Mile Road. And then the federal government was like, OK, we cool now. We can insure mortgages on the white side of the road, because now there's a wall. So that's the first thing that Rothstein says, and I'm telling you, he goes through it, and he goes through the states, and then there's like one thing in the afterword, you always gotta read the afterword, they put the good stuff there. He's like, and somebody gave him tons of data about New Jersey that he can't use in this book. He has no room for it. Come on, New Jersey, give me New Jersey. I wanna read New Jersey, because at some point that's gonna be us, right? He goes through it all over the North. It's It's not the fact of segregation. It's segregation by government action all over the North. And then he says something else, which is also striking. He says, none of this was a secret. It wasn't secret. Real estate agents were told these are the mortgages we'll back and these are the ones we won't back. It was part of the ethical code of realtors that they weren't allowed to disturb the racial character of neighborhoods. Everybody knew this, he says. It just somehow, we decided to do one of those, you know, men in black, wipe the brain, you know what I'm talking about? Men in black, white the brain things? Because we didn't want to remember it, because it served our purposes better to say, well, if people choose to live racially separately, there's nothing government can do about that, and I guess their schools will just end up being racially separated, and there's nothing government can do about that either. Okay? And Rothstein cites as two books that he says, there are people who came before me who wrote about this, Y'all just didn't pick up what they were putting down, as one of my students used to say. Um, <laughs> he'd say, I'm sure you're not picking up what you're putting down. Anyhow, um, and I own both of the books that he said already talked about this. This was over so I I was reading this. So okay. go to my bookshelves and I pull up, he refers to Kenneth Jackson's book, Crabgrass Frontier, which is a very famous history of American suburbanization written in the 1980s. And he cites, you know, he's got a phone note, he tells you where I open up Crabgrass Frontier which I own, which I read, I, and at least I read parts of it at some point, sit on my bookshelf. And Credit Fiance Frontier talks exactly about these explicitly, explicitly racial and racist laws in what houses the government would give mortgages on. Not give, government didn't directly give mortgages. It insured mortgages which made it possible for people to get mortgages. I'm like, holy mackerel. Now first of all, Jackson didn't make that as he didn't put it as far into the foreground as Rothstein does. It's a subject of Rothstein's whole book. So okay, he doesn't like, you know, he go over the head and fight with it. But he says it, he says it in the chapter. You could read it and see it there. But in 1985 or 6, when people read Jackson's book, they didn't want to see it there. We didn't want to see it there. So we didn't see it, even though it was in the book. Then he cites another book. That was written a little bit later, but I read a little bit later. Late 90s. Also talks about, this is Elizabeth Cohen, Consumers Republic, and she's a professor of history at Harvard. She actually grew up in Paramus, New Jersey, and she writes about New Jersey. Her whole book is about New Jersey, looking at America turning into a republic of of consumption and consumers, which we're going to get to in a couple of minutes, through the lens of New Jersey. And she also refers there to some of the uh, segregation and housing patterns in New Jersey, again, as not being, oh, people just decided to sort themselves, but government was sorting them. And I had read that book also, and also had to notice it because I wasn't ready to notice it because we didn't want to notice it because this is really deeply discomfiting. If we think that there is at least a possibility that some of our lack of investment or lack of sense of shared commitment to, invested, investment in, shared lot with American society, is like, let's is playing, because to a greater or lesser extent, even if we didn't design it, even if we didn't implement it, even if we don't want it, even if we would say it's morally wrong, but we are the beneficiaries of government segregation that has created the communities we live in. Uh, By the way, if you live on the Upper West Side right now, you're like, yeah, no, I'm good. No, you're not. No, you're not. It's not just about the suburbs. It happens in New York City as well. It happens in the urban areas as well. The government did the same redlining. didn't just happen outside of the cities. If you're feeling like, you could feel, right, we could have long conversations about that and about gentrification and about displacement of poor people and people of color and lots and lots of conversations that we're not going to have right now. It's simply not the case that this is just a suburban phenomenon. It was an everywhere that the federal government was backing, mortgages phenomenon, which is to say it was an everywhere phenomenon. I'll say one more personal thing about this and then we'll go on to the next thing, because uh, I'm hitting that point where you say I have that many more points to go and that little time left. Uh, my grandfather, served in the U.S. Army in World oh, War II, I just spoke to my students about this on Friday in honor of Veterans day. My grandfather came over in the 1930s, sometime, from Eastern Europe. Um, not, I think, because he was precious, just because he was desperate, looking for a better life for himself. I'm not even sure he was a citizen by the time he served in the military. They took non-citizens into the military and then, like, processed them into citizenship on the way out. No one cared. They <laughs> had 12 million men in the American army, world or two. They didn't really care what your paper said. Um, and then my grandfather was eligible for the GI Bill. And my grandfather, at some point, tried this and tried that, and then started buying apartment buildings for rent out and uh, the family still holds those apartment buildings today. My mother, my aunt and my uncle still own those apartment buildings today. And the economic security that is created now for a third generation and going down to a fourth generation, right, is a very real thing in our family's lives. It wasn't until I was in graduate school probably that I learned that the GI Bill was intentionally and explicitly written so that African-American GIs could not take advantage of its benefits. One was in this business of insuring mortgages, where the GI Bill didn't directly grant mortgages, it made you able to get a mortgage backed by the VA. But again, what mortgages the government would back, and where, and how, and where the bank lend to you, and redlining all played into this, so that many African-Americans couldn't take advantage of the GI, African-American veterans couldn't take advantage of the GI Bill. And the other issue was that it paid for you to go to get higher education, but of course you had to find a school that would take you. And there were many more African American veterans who wanted to go on to post secondary education than there were seats in post secondary education for them. So, when a student of mine says, if My grandfather earned the money, why should we have to pay the estate tax? What? Your grandfather did earn the money. Your grandfather worked very hard. And what were the structures and what were the infrastructures that set up conditions under which your grandfather was able to? turn his very hard work into that kind of success, and to what extent were other people in conditions that didn't enable it. And now, not only was that unjust in the first place, but watch what we're watching now. Because you have achieved that success and somebody else has and you look at them and you say, you didn't work hard, right, I didn't earn it, I did, I therefore owe nothing to enable your success. And we're now getting, right? It, it's. The boomerang effect is now that's going to lead you to disinvest from citizenship, because I made it, you didn't make it, I earned it, you didn't earn it, so work harder and earn it. Instead of, there's something shared here that we all should commit to invest in and work to make better. Um, there's two more things I would like to talk about. I'll try to do it. The next thing I want to talk about, in terms of the things that lead to our disinvesting from citizenship, from a sense of shared obligation shared destiny, shared anything, being in something bigger than myself, working towards larger goals. So the next thing I want to talk about is that we do not live in an age where being part of a great collective, working towards a great goal is what people aspire to. We live in the age of the individualized, of the customized, the super annoying term of art right now is curated, right? Curated. I particularly pick the pictures on my Instagram feed, the toys on my desk, the bumper stickers on my car, the I don't know what, that best reflect my identity as me. <laughs> we see this in education all the time. Gone are the days, for better and for worse. Gone are the days of saying, <coughs> everybody go home and memorize the first Ed <coughs> right? We differentiate. We can talk all day about how much is great about differentiation, about how kids learn differently, about how so many kids were left behind in the old system, about how why it's so important and valuable that we recognize all the differences in how kids learn and how they take in and how they, but we are customizing programs and teaching and assessment and everything else because everyone's different and everyone needs something different and let's make sure that we give everyone something different, right? I watched this reach, it's it's like almost funny conclusion. If you watch the United States Army try to attract people to enlist in the Army by emphasizing individual fulfillment and self-definition from serving in the Army. If there is any institution in American life that does not in fact afford you the opportunity for individual fulfillment and self-definition, it would be the United States Army. You give up your you know this you give up your constitutional rights to join the Army? Yes. You lose your rights to free speech, you lose all kinds of rights, right? You can't just you cannot in uniform publicly rank on the on the president of the United States, which is political speech which is the most highly protected form of speech under our Constitution. But if you are a soldier in uniform, you cannot publicly rank on the President of the United States because he is your Commander-in-Chief, and there are rules about being in the Army. You give up your right to free speech, never mind everything else you give up to be in the Army. And yet, do you remember the slogan? First there was be all you can be, so you remember be all you can be. But then there was an Army of One. Do you remember an Army of One? I was like, that is that is really the funniest thing I have ever heard. You imagine a poor 19-year-old who signs up expecting an army of one, and then he discovers like he's in basic training and it ain't an army of one. Yeah. Um, but every institution in our lives is responding to this sense that we want increasing customization, increasing individualization, increasing I gotta be me by reaching out to that and out to that place. Mm-hmm. And in that climate, in that environment with that expectation, it's very hard to say to somebody that you're not gonna get everything you want. And you have to make a choice sometimes between more good and less good, not a perfect reflection of me and who I wanna be, And right? You can't go voting looking for a perfect reflection of me and who I wanna be or else I'm staying home. That's not how politics works, right? You have to engage in a society in terms of like, much more utilitarianly, like what's the greatest good for the greatest number, and then even if it doesn't really flatter my self-conception that I found the candidate who most exactly reflects the me I'd like to be, you you go vote anyway. I remember listening to people say in 1996 when Bill Clinton was running for election, I'm going to hold my nose and vote, right? I don't like I'm going to hold my nose and vote anymore, I really don't. That's what politics is. That's what politics is. You never get a perfect candidate. Not ever going to happen, ever. If you keep holding out for the perfect candidate, you're actually... Rejecting the entire enterprise. The perfect candidate who perfectly reflects me and what I want to, your perfect candidate is different. That's not what politics is. It's not how it works. And if we can't say we're going to join together and each one of us is going to give up something that we want or care about or value, because we're not going to find anyone who's going to give us everything we want or care about or value. And you're right, then these become hard questions. Well, how much of what I want and care about and value before I'm too far gone and I'm done? I told my students, we had this conversation in Gov on Friday, AP U.S. Government and Politics that I teach. Uh, There's a professor of political science, a very left-wing professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island named Eric Loomis, who said recently, there are no deal breakers in politics. There are no deal breakers in politics, by which he meant a politician who's better for more of the things I care about, I will vote for, no matter what other bad things he supports, or she supports, because there are no deal breakers in politics, because the only alternative is to support somebody who is going to advance even fewer of the things that I care about and I support. And I said to my students, like that's actually, if you think about that, that's a very tough moral question. Are there any things that I think are so not okay that if you support this, what about if you did this? I won't vote for you, even if you'll advance the issues I think are more important for the betterment of our society Right? Are there such issues, that's it, or there are no such issues that are, because the the bigger bigger. And the more you think about it, actually, the more challenging that question is. So I spent some time challenging my students with it. Um, But one way or another, that speaks to the idea that politics is a collective enterprise, citizenship is a collective enterprise, that we engage in together and we give give up some of our most precious I in order to become part of a we that's trying to get something done. And if we can't vote for anybody who doesn't precisely reflect my most precious eye, we're going to find ourselves sitting home from politics and then saying, oh, I didn't like the way that turned out, those of us who were old enough to remember the 2000, I I actually really think this, I think those of us who were old enough to remember the 2000 election thought very differently about 2016 than those people who were were too young to remember. And I I remember people saying, I cannot vote for a candidate who supported this position or that position that I think is so terrible or insupportable. And I said, let me tell you a story about Ralph Nader in Florida. Yeah. Okay. One more thing that I want. One more topic I want to get to. I have. The last topic that I want to get to is deconstructing the narrative, reconstructing the narrative. And this one hits me most where I live, as a teacher of American history. I like to think that I'm a pretty good teacher of American history. I spent a lot of time learning stuff about American history. I know much more about American history than I did when I started teaching this however many years ago, even though I'd already been through a doctoral program in American history. And I hadn't finished my doctorate I'm like, yeah, I've just been through a doctoral program. It took yeah. another many years to actually finish that yeah. conversation. Um, and most of that stuff that I know militates in the direction of taking away those narratives that make us feel warm and fuzzy in our tummies. Most of what I know tells us that this country has a more brutal and more ugly and more complicated and less rah-rah history even than I thought when I started, and I didn't think it was all that uncomplicatedly rah, rah, when I started. And I have done a pretty good job for a long time of teaching that complication to my students. Here's what I didn't do, because I didn't do it. I didn't stop and say, well, now that I've pointed out to them all of the ways in which our beautiful narrative about a country conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal is does not true at all. <laughs> I've helped them see that and understand that. And I've taught them all of that. And I didn't ask myself how am I leaving them at the end with a way of being an invested citizen in an enterprise that I have spent so much time teaching them is so compromised and flawed. <laughs> Had I thought about this from a citizenship lens, I might have asked that question, but I didn't. I thought about it from an American history teaching lens. And from an American history teaching lens, the more I introduce the complexity and the challenge and it's really not all rah-rah wave the flag, the more I'm doing a good job as a history teacher. And I am. That's what it means to a good job as a history teacher. It really does. I'm not looking to go back to simplify narratives. I don't want to take Frederick Douglass' oration about what is the meaning of the 4th of July to a slave out of the curriculum because, oh, it's got to undermine their patriotism. You've got to read Frederick Douglass's oration on what is the meaning of the 4th of July to the slave. You have to ask yourself those questions. I have to tell my students that in 1996 or so, Jack Rakehold, who's a very respected historian of early America, the Constitution, a constitutional scholar, wrote a book called Thomas Jefferson, American Sphinx. American Sphinx, Thomas Jefferson, American Sphinx. A biography of Thomas Jefferson, and in that book he writes, basically, Thomas Jefferson couldn't have had a relationship with Sally Hemings because we know our Thomas Jefferson wouldn't have done a thing like that. That's pretty much basically what his argument consists of. I'm, I'm you know, I'm making fun of it, but really only just a little bit. Everything we know about Thomas Jefferson, this is not consistent with what we know. Meanwhile, African Americans have been telling in their familial oral history since day one. That, never, that story was never lost. That's another story we chose not to hear. right? They've been telling that story since day one that the Hemings kids were Jefferson's kids. Within a couple of years of his publishing that book, of course, the uh, you know the famous book Tom Jefferson and Sally Hemings' of American controversy came out, and um, within a couple of years of that, DNA testing became a deal. It's, it, we should remember, we should not allow ourselves to forget, that it was not the DNA testing that came first. It was first an African American woman law professor who wrote a book pulling together all of the evidence that existed and saying, folks, if you actually wanted to see this, you would see this. Jefferson was the father of Hemings' kids. The next word' read her name. She was at NYU at the time, but here's basically how it works in case you want to know. Harvard has more money than God. So if anybody becomes really famous or prominent in their field, Harvard weighs large sheaves of dollar bills under their faces, and then they go to Harvard, so then Annette Gordon Reed went to Harvard. But Annette Gordon Reed was an, a not very well-known law professor at NYU, and she wrote a book that wasn't even about law, it was about American history. Called Thomas Jefferson and Sal Hemings, an American Controversy. And when she lays out all well, of what was then circumstantial evidence that Jefferson was the father of Hemings' kids, and people were like, that actually looks pretty convincing. And then it was the late 90s, and then they did DNA testing. And then it was conclusively established that a male Jefferson was the father of Hemings's kids. And at that point, the contortions that it would take to argue that it was a different male Jefferson, not Thomas, were such that those kids are now, those African-American families, kids, those descendants of those children, are now admitted into the Monticello organization and are allowed to be buried on the grounds of Monticello, which is a privilege that is reserved for Jefferson's kids. OK? <laughs> So stories out there, stories we don't want to hear. I tell my kids those stories. But then what? But then what? I never asked them what. I never thought about then what, right? Then how are we leave- leaving them with some ability to feel invested in or committed to or proud of this American identity that they have? So I will tell you about a trip I made this summer, and then I will um, wrap up, because I'm out of time, running out of time, close to out of time. Um, I had a classmate in graduate school whose name is Denver Brunsman, who's now the head of undergraduate history education at George Washington University, because that's what you're supposed to do when you come out of graduate school. You're supposed to become a professor, only I did it. And I had read some things that he had written about trying to teach history in this way, both in a complex and nuanced way and in a way that still left students with some ability to feel invested and committed to proud of their American citizenship. So I emailed Denver. I said, hi, remember me. I'd like to come talk to you about it. Worked that well because my youngest son, who's six years old, insisted that we go to Washington for our family vacation this summer because he wanted to go to the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, and uh, Professor Brunsman is at George Washington University, so I emailed him, I said, we're coming to Washington this week of August, can we meet? So one morning, one day in August, I left my family in the campgrounds, that's what what we do, and I drove into DC proper to meet with him and had a long and fascinating conversation about exactly these questions. There really are people out there who are thinking seriously about this, not giving up teaching real history, not going back to teaching the founding fathers had no flaws, but teaching the complicated truths that we know and yet trying to figure out how to emerge from that with something that we can teach to and feel invested in and feel committed to because citizenship doesn't, all the stuff that I'm talking about, how we have disinvested and disengaged, well we're not going to reinvest and reengage because I stand up here and give you statistics about redlining in the suburbs. We're going to reinvest and reengage because we feel like there's something worth investing and engaging in. And so the thing that he said he comes back to is the focus on a creedal nation, that America was founded with a creed, and that even if the country didn't live up to the creed in the beginning, and even if it's still not living perfectly up to the creed now, you can teach students to feel proud of and committed to that creed, which over time has evolved to be offering more freedom to more people, right? And you can teach kids to be invested in and connected to that even as you teach them some of the complexity and the nuance. So I said to him at the time, I get why this works for me. I get why this works for my community. I get why this works for our kids. Because our experience has looked like this, right? Our Eastern European immigrant ancestors with nothing or our Holocaust refugee ancestors with less than nothing um, coming here and be able to create life for themselves and vaulting us into a position where, as an, American commu- as an American Jewish community, we have been an incredibly successful community. I get why I can sell "Cradle Nation" to my students. I said, I really wonder, I still wonder, I don't have to, this is like an open question, I don't have an answer to this. I don't know how you teach us to African American kids, I don't know how you teach us to Native American kids, I don't know how you teach us to kids whose, whose experience is so different, and they see it even today being lived out differently enough that I'm not really sure how you teach them this idea of feeling invested and connected to a creedal nation. Having said that, that's not particularly right. That, that, that's for me an open question and one that I hope to come to understand more. probably there's a book I could order I'll go see Jonathan Haslam. Um, but for our kids, for our American Jewish kids, we should be able to say that. This is a country that for all that I might have kept you know, my father out of whatever school he might have wanted to go to, nevertheless has offered us more freedom and continues to offer us more freedom and more opportunity you know, than any other country of the diaspora. Um, there's been a lot of talk recently about the works on race in the United States, written by ta Coates, who has become, you know, sort of the voice of challenge to the narrative of optimism, his explicit challenge to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's um, famous line that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Coates says, ain't no arc of the moral universe, doesn't bend towards anything. could go either way at any time. Uh, I was talking to Dr. Tamara Mantuil, who is coordinating this citizenship initiative that I told you about are working on. She's really working on it, working with uh, developing citizenship curricula to bring into schools. Um, and she said something very interesting to me, which I think is the worthy place to close. She said, it's very central to Coates's identity, that he's an atheist. And part of his sense of his lack of belief in a moral arc, he's very explicit about this all the time, of his lack of belief in a moral arc, his lack of belief in an ultimate direction, his lack of belief that he's going someplace, he doesn't believe the universe is a moral arc. The universe doesn't have a, an ultimate direction. The universe doesn't have belief does isn't going someplace, so why should the United States be? He said, we particularly as a people, we don't think that way, right? We believe deeply in moral arcs of the universe and in things going some places, and in the possibility of working towards something better and in the po- possibility of progress and change. And that affords us that, coupled with our historical experience of being very fortunate, blessed, and successful in this country, affords us a place to stand from which we could feel invested in this enterprise in this shared United States, even as we have a very clear understanding of it and all the shortcomings. So this, I think, ends up being a little bit more than just an academic exercise in understanding the different ways in which we, as an American Jewish community, particularly as an American Orthodox community, although not exclusively, have come to be disconnected from or disinvested in the broader American enterprise, the sense that there is a broader American enterprise, that we owe something to this broader American enterprise, that we are beneficiaries of this broader American enterprise. It's not just analysis and understanding. I think, in the end, it's something of a call to action. And it requires us thinking about more than just picking up a phone and calling our congressperson when she's pursuing a policy that we don't agree that we don't want. That may be a more invested version of the soda machine. I think it actually asks us to start thinking about ways in which we can reinvest, reconnect, re-engage, recommit to our citizenship in the United States, not aside from our being Jews, but particularly as Jews. Thank you.